0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Bhaj Mukhopadhyay, Mehek Sani, and Adita Chaudhry. One of the most important political trajectories of recent years has been the rise of the far-right. In North America, we often fail to appreciate how this political dynamic is playing out not only here, but in at least some countries in the Global South. The far-right government of Narendra Modi and the BJP party in India, for instance, is not always recognized as part of this trend in mainstream North American conversation. The BJP and its powerful array of associated organizations are devoted to Hindutva, or Hindu nationalism. These politics are taken up in the context of a country with a robust and inclusive tradition of secularism, a secular constitution, and a wide range of cultures, languages, and religions, including a rich diversity of traditions within the historically broad umbrella of Hinduism. Hindutva politics seek to transform India into a specifically Hindu nation, under a narrow and elite version of Hinduism. Though they use language of development and economic populism, the BJP's politics work to reinforce hierarchies of gender, caste, and class, and to increase economic inequality. In particular, though 200 million Indians are Muslim, the BJP has a long and disturbing record of attack on Islam and on Muslims. The BJP is currently about one year into its second successive majority government. Of particular concern for today's interview are two policy initiatives. The National Register of Citizens, or NRC, and the Citizenship Amendment Act, or CAA. The NRC, as the name indicates, is an effort to create a comprehensive registry of citizens in the country. A recent trial run in a single state resulted in more than two million residents being denied citizenship. What this means is that they lacked certain documents, and in India, lots of people, particularly poor people, lack documents for all kinds of reasons that may have nothing to do with migration or residency. The BJP government has committed to implementing the NRC nationally, but it's unclear how they could possibly do this without reproducing this fiasco on a national scale. The CAA is a piece of legislation that was passed in December 2019 that modifies India's citizenship requirements. Essentially, it offers Indian citizenship to refugees from neighboring countries, except, that is, if they're Muslim. Some of the opposition to the CAA is based on the fact that it treats people differently based on their religion, a violation, opponents argue, of India's constitution and of the spirit of its secular democracy. In light of the pending NRC, however, the injustice of the CAA is even more stark. It would allow non-Muslims in that process who for whatever reason lack papers to have access to Indian citizenship anyway, but it would exclude Muslims. Powerful government figures have already been throwing around dehumanizing language, and detention centers for Muslims are already being built in one state. As columnist Sri Paradkar recently observed in the Toronto Star, quote, In this way, all Muslims in India could potentially become stateless, end quote. The protests against this legislation in India have been massive. Quite literally hundreds of millions of people have been on the streets at one point or another since the uprising began in December. Students in particular have been leading the way and have faced harsh police repression, including deaths at police hands. And trade unions, women's groups, farmers' organizations, and more have also linked this issue to their broader opposition to the BJP's agenda. According to today's guests, though the Indian diaspora in North America is as diverse as India itself, its politics are most often dominated by elite and conservative elements. There are also, however, traditions of progressive organizing within the Indian diaspora in Canada, dating back to at least the 1970s. And since the resistance to the NRC and CAA began in India, Montreal and Toronto have both seen demonstrations and other events in solidarity. The next big day of action will be January 26th, which is the anniversary of the day that the Indian Constitution took effect in 1950. Demonstrations are planned in India itself, and in diasporic communities around the world, including in Toronto, Montreal, and elsewhere in Canada. A key demand of the organizers in this country, which they hope other Canadians will take up, is that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speak out in some way about what's happening in India. Teach-ins are also being planned, and discussions are ongoing about other ways to exert pressure on the Indian state. The long-term hope is that mobilizing in solidarity with Indian protests against the far-right policies of the BJP can be part of a broader front to mobilize against the far-right in Canada and around the world. Adita Chaudhry is a graduate student at York University in Toronto, Mehak Sani is an international student doing her PhD at McGill University in Montreal, and Baj Mukhopadhyay is a physician also based in Montreal. I speak with them about the context and struggle in India, and about the solidarity organizing happening in Canada.
1: My name is Bajmuk Bhattai, I am from Giojage, otherwise known as Montreal. I am Bengali from India. I was an Indian citizen all the way until the age of 26, and I'm involved in working in solidarity with protests in India against the Citizenship Amendment Act, as well as the National Register of Citizens. I've been involved in a wide variety of social movement work, organizing work on a variety of issues. I do work mainly as a family doctor in my day to day life. So a lot of my work nowadays has been around health related issues, but I have in the past worked on migrant justice issues, HIV AIDS organizing, some anti mining work as well. When it comes to issues around diaspora or issues in India, I think I come from a fairly political or politicized family and in India quite often. And I still have a lot of my family there. And so I'm deeply connected to a lot of the things that go on in India, but also I feel what's happening in India is something that someone who's engaged in progressive politics just can't ignore and just has to engage in. My name is
2: Adita. I am a resident of Toronto. I'm a PhD student in York University. I am a Canadian citizen, but I've been an Indian citizen till I was 14. But the rest of my family are still Indian citizens, and I'm also Bengali. Through my academic experiences, I have understood better the global context of both settler colonialism and extractive colonialism. And the rise of the far right across the world in the last decade is something that I've been following. I kind of fell into following the way that certain kinds of far-right movements were becoming normalized in Ontario universities. But what was concerning to me was while anti-fascist movements in North America were aware of the dangers of these kinds of things, of certain other kinds of authoritarianism were not being paid attention to, and that there was not enough solidarity across international movements with what was happening in India.
3: I'm Mehek. I'm an international PhD student at McGill, and I have been involved in organizing protests against the CA and the NRC in Montreal. I hail from Punjab and I've studied in Delhi for quite some time and I've also seen student protests in various universities in Delhi growing over the last five years. I've come to Montreal very recently. I came here in August 2019 and before that, I spent about seven years in Delhi. My association with Student protests, particularly against the Modi government, dates back to about February 2016, when this whole issue about GNU, which is a premier university in Delhi, started when some students were charged with sedition. And my friends were involved. And I very vividly remember this particular moment and this one particular protest to support the students who were charged for sedition. And I saw these right-wing goons with sticks coming and attacking students and friends. And I think that was the moment which really pushed me to participate very regularly in these student protests.
0: Before we talk about the CAA and NRC specifically, lay out some of the broader political context in India, particularly when it comes to the BJP, India's ruling party at the federal level, and the movement to which it's attached.
2: Starting in 2014, BJP won the kind of majority that has been not really seen within Indian politics since the 80s. And they did so with the promises of development with the promises of rooting out corruption and with the promises of being tough on crime and terrorism. But what a lot of people ignored or maybe were complicit in is that the BJP has always in its ideology centralized the role of Hindutva. And Hindutva is Hindu nationalism. They really centered majoritarian identity politics as part of this mandate which also gave a lot of lip service to upliftment of minorities. But underlying all of that was the sentiment that there's going to be a revival of this great Hindu past that has been tarnished either by Western influences or by, quote-unquote, Islamic invaders. As a result of that, it calls for a kind of nationalism that wants to reject anything that is not, quote-unquote, indigenous. And indigenous within Hindutva ideology is defined as Hindu and not just Hindu, but the kind of Hinduism that is Brahminical and patriarchal and very much naturalizes and justifies caste ideology as decolonial. And therefore, the right thing to do to, quote unquote, decolonize India would be to go back to caste hierarchies and a certain place of women in society and so on and so forth. Ignoring the fact that there are indigenous people within India, that there are people who have been resisting caste hierarchies since before European colonization of the Indias. So it's a very selective mentality and a selective ideology that really privileges high caste Hindu men over everyone
3: else. BJP is absolutely an anti minority and an anti poor government. And though the international image of the BJP and Narendra Modi is that, okay, he is the prime minister who has the guts to take certain bold decisions. But the nature of those decisions and the systematic and structural oppression that they propagate is really never on international news media. This has been a series of laws, a series of amendments which have been made to the constitution by the BJP government. Amendments which are both anti-minority and anti-poor. And even the spread of hatred and violence against the Muslims has been something which has been propagated by the government over the past
1: few years. This history of Hindu nationalism isn't new. The RSS, which is the paramilitary outfit of the BJP, its birth goes back 100 years. And the BJP has all these associated organizations which speak to its immense organizing power. They've been slowly taking over state institutions. And so it's not just now that people in India have been noticing this sort of takeover of the fabric of governance in the country, the cultural outlook of the country. What we're seeing now in India is, for many of us who have a progressive perspective on Indian politics, is just the logical consequence of dynamics that have been building for a very long time and have not been challenged successfully.
0: And what are the Citizenship Amendment Act and the National Register of Citizens? it would
3: be beneficial to understand the National Register of Citizens and the Citizenship Amendment Act in relation to each other. So the National Register of Citizens, as the name suggests, is a National Register of Citizens, and it was first implemented in Assam some time ago, which requires people to show their document to be able to prove their citizenship. Nothing is very clear about the process of how this was done or will be done. And the Citizenship Amendment Act, which was passed very recently on December 11, 2019, it is a law which says that people of particular religion, say Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, or Christianity, would be given citizenship in India except Muslims. So even if the people of these particular religions are unable to show their documents to prove their citizenship, they would be accepted by the country as a citizen. But Muslims from Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Bangladesh would not be. So very, very clearly, CAA is a law which promises to grant citizenship on religious basis, which is absolutely unconstitutional.
1: I've had to confront amongst friends and family the idea that, well, the Citizenship Amendment Act isn't necessarily an attack on the secular fabric of India because it doesn't really affect Indian citizens. And I think Mehak just pointed out that it might actually affect Indian citizens because the process of proving citizenship in a country where, you know, there's a high degree of illiteracy, where documents might be hard to trace, where the state bureaucracy is not always able to provide identifying documents, it may have an impact on people who are, in all practical respects, Indian citizens. But the bigger idea is that any law, even if it's a law that applies to foreign citizens living in India, any law that uses religion as a basis of access to social or economic or political rights is fundamentally against the secular principle of the Constitution. And I think we're aware of the possible creep that can happen that first it's the people who are not citizens. And then slowly, if one law like this is allowed, the gradual expansion of this principle of like, oh, you know, maybe it's not so bad to use religion as a discriminatory principle for access to rights and social services. That becomes a huge problem. And I think we have to stop this before it gets any bigger. And I think the idea that any law in a secular country can be passed with using religion as a discriminating factor is just unacceptable.
2: There are implications for people that are of any minority background that are challenged in terms of their caste or their class, because regardless of religious affiliation, one of the things that this can possibly do, and we don't know how it's actually going to be implemented, is take away existing citizenship rights. And possibly property and other things that people take for granted on a day-to-day basis before citizenship can be restored to a person who might not have papers. And this is regardless of whether they are Hindu or Muslim. This could happen to a person. So it, it creates actual disruptions in people's lives. But with Muslims being the only people that are excluded from it, what it does, it naturalizes this idea that Muslims cannot really be Indians and that they are necessarily someone who belongs to Bangladesh, Pakistan, or Afghanistan. And that is a challenge to the idea of Indian identity itself. And it is really an assault on the basic fundamental secular principles of the country.
0: What has the resistance to the CAA and the NRC been like in India itself?
3: The protests in India against CAA and NRC have been huge. Hundreds of millions of people are out on the streets fighting against these draconian anti-minority, anti-poor laws. Specifically, I think I should mention the student protests at Muslim-majority institutions like Jamia and Aligarh Muslim University, where students were peacefully protesting and were countered by extreme police brutality and violence, which has led to about 27 murders so far by police brutality across India. And hundreds of students and professors actually have been injured and have landed in hospitals. One of the biggest protests in India in the last 40 years happened on 8th January, which is actually a combined protest by labor and trade unions, by women, by farmers, which actually depicts the overall condition of India right now and how everything is really intertwined. Yes, it is about religious minorities, but it is also about issues of caste, the status of the economy, status of women, and so much more, which is behind what's happening right now. One of the other things which must be mentioned is that many, many protests are being led by women right now. And this is also a message to the Indian diasporic community in North America, which is that I'd say that they should be wary of the fact that whatever reaches across borders is very different from the on-ground reality. And media channels take very good care of spreading misinformation and hatred. So I'd really suggest people to consult the right sources and not rely on what we call the WhatsApp University or primarily on social media. There are news channels like NDTV or other sources like Wire Scroll, which are working a lot to report honestly from India. And it would be a good thing to be wary of the fact that a lot of misinformation and hatred is being spread.
0: How has this been playing out in Indian diasporic communities in North America, particularly where you are in Montreal and Toronto?
1: The Indian diaspora is as diverse as the country itself. There's people of all classes, all castes, all religious backgrounds, speaking all sorts of languages that are spread out really all over the world. Unfortunately, the politics of the diaspora is often determined by people who have the most visibility and the most resources to dominate political space. And I think certainly in North America and perhaps also in Europe, the people most likely to dominate the political space are actually extremely conservative. They have a lot of financial clout, they have a lot of political clout in the diasporic communities. And so the image of the diaspora politically is one that's actually quite conservative, is quite comfortable with Hindu majoritarian authoritarianism, and has a very idealized, rigid view of what India could and should be, and is not afraid to ally itself with dangerous currents in their home communities, such as we see with Trump's white nationalism in the United States, One of the reasons why I think it's particularly important for diaspora communities to stand up against what's happening in India right now is to show that it's not a consensus among the diaspora. We do not agree. We are not all on board with what's happening in India and what's happening within our own communities. And I think it's really important that we show that we will not allow our voice to be taken over by a very, very powerful, but very, very problematic vision of what India could and should be. What was most interesting to me about what's happening in Montreal now is the intergenerational nature of it. There has been a long tradition in Montreal of people who are now older South Asian leftists who have under various rubrics organized over time together over various issues that have affected both South Asian as racialized people here in North America, as well as in solidarity with issues in South Asia. And then there was a sort of younger crew. I was part of that who were involved in more recent, like 2000, 2010 onwards, doing similar sorts of work. And I think what's happened in the last year is there's been this concerted effort for us to bridge that generational divide in Montreal. I think I can speak a little bit about
3: the protest organization in Montreal. The trigger was, of course, the CAA, some of us. We were batchmates and students in McGill and we just got together over WhatsApp and we were discussing and we thought that something ought to be done. At least the student population needs to be mobilized. And that is how we started. And gradually we joined other organizations and in Montreal at least, students, people from the diaspora and also other NGOs and other activists are coming together to organize protests. We had two protests in December. One was particularly a student's protest and the other one was a larger one.
2: In Toronto, organizing started happening in the aftermath of the scrapping of Section 370.
0: Uh, that's of the Indian constitution. Starting in August 2019, this process has involved military occupation, removal of civil liberties, and direct rule of the Muslim-majority state of Jammu and Kashmir by India's Hindu nationalist central government.
2: So there was already certain things that were brewing within the diasporic Kashmiri community that, started a culmination of other movements that were able to come together to protest the CAA. And since then, within Toronto, I know that other organizations that are interested in similar struggles, including people who are protesting police brutality and anti-democracy in Hong Kong have also shown up for our protests, as well as socialist and workers-led movements within Ontario that are working against the Ford government have also given us their solidarity. So I kind of uh, hope to see the anti-CAA movement that's happening in Toronto, and elsewhere in the world go into a kind of space where it can take on both issues of Hindu nationalism, authoritarianism, state surveillance, police brutality, but as well as like very basic workers' issues.
0: And what's going on right now in Montreal and Toronto in terms of this organizing?
3: Now we're moving forward towards a bigger march and protest on the 26th of January 26th of January is a very, very special date because it is on 26th January 1950 that the Indian constitution got adopted and there are going to be protests across countries all over the world in solidarity with protesters in India, in solidarity with those injured and in solidarity with those who would be affected by these draconian laws. And as students and as participants in a larger community, we are also planning a teaching series in Montreal, which is to bring together people from various countries, whether it be international students or people of the diaspora or anyone who's interested to talk about the rise of global fascism so that we can build comparisons across countries, because this is also a global trend. And one of our primary demands, at least from the Canadian government, is that the Canadian government officials and especially Prime Minister Justin Trudeau should release a statement and condemn what's happening in India. Because from what we've heard from friends in India, they say that at least some international pressure definitely needs to be built.
2: Similarly, there's going to be a march in Toronto for January 26th as it's been organized across North America. And we're similarly tracking down our MPs to build international pressure, as Mehik said. There's also talk about possibly organizing certain kinds of boycotts or sanctions against India. And currently, from what I know, the organizers here in Toronto are also working with local leftist socialist and workers groups, as well as immigrant rights and anti-racist groups to mobilize further in this agenda.
3: There are also attempts that organizations and people involved in organizing across various cities in Canada, and all of us also trying and getting in touch with other organizations or students who are organizing protests in other countries to get together at an organizational level so that our demands can be common and we can strengthen our voices to build this international pressure.
1: There is also a Montreal effort to organize more consistently and effectively across diaspora communities across communities where there are protests against fascism or authoritarianism in their countries of origin, such as Chile, Algeria, Iran, Philippines. And we are trying to work together on that front too, in order to build solidarity and connections amongst racialized peoples in North America who are struggling with some of these issues.
0: What would you say to Canadians who don't themselves have any connection to South Asia, but who are interested in figuring out how to be in solidarity with the struggles going on there?
1: There is a history in India that anything that appears like foreign interference becomes a very sensitive issue and can often cause a backlash against people who are protesting. So I think navigating those relationships, like checking in with the people who are organizing about what your presence might mean, would be wise and considerate to do. But I think there are some very concrete things people can do. The first thing being fight Islamophobia, fight racism, fight fascism in your own communities. And I think if we see everybody working against that in all their spheres where they see it, it doesn't become an India alone thing. We can definitely say, listen, we are a progressive front across the world working against these dynamics all over the world. The second thing I would say is really educate yourself about what the links are between the Hindu right and your own community. If you are a white North American, ask yourself why Trump and Modi had such a great meeting in Texas last year. Why is white nationalism and Hindu nationalism, why are people speaking about them more and more in the same breath? Why is Indian foreign policy aligning itself more and more to U.S. imperialism? And the third thing I'd say is that the Hindu right in the diaspora is actually extremely organized. I know friends who have been the target of online abuse, have been harassed just because they've stepped up and spoken up against something awful that's been happening in India. And I think being ready to support your friends or people you might know, if they are the target of such abuse and harassment is something that could actually be very useful to people who are organizing against it, keeping your allies and keeping your friends safe.
2: I think it's very important, especially in this time for North Americans to interrogate how often they have conflated Hinduism to India and vice versa, which sort of naturalizes and justifies the role of Hindu nationalism within India and internationally. I think it's important to understand where the secular values of India comes from and how Hindu nationalism and other kinds of majoritarian fascist initiatives from India are manipulating multiculturalism and such values to go undercover and further normalize Hindu nationalism.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Bhaj Mukhopadhyay, Mehek Sani, and Adita Chaudhry about the organizing happening in Toronto, Montreal, and elsewhere in Canada, in solidarity with protests in India against the National Register of Citizens and the Citizenship Amendment Act. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.